hit start recording. Welcome to the last call. It's a conversation of a kind between two boozy hacks. I'm John Sweeney in London and in New York, there's Michael Weiss. Today, our podcast has a great guest, someone who knows what it's like to be in a lockdown in prison. But before, but before we talk to our ex-con, and it could be Harvey Weinstein, you'll just have to wait and see. That's not Let's X. That's not X. That's current con. <laughs> and he's got COVID-19 to boot. Um, okay, it's not Harvey Weinstein. Um, but before we talk to our ex-con, let's check in to our competition. Which country is more fucked, the United Kingdom or the United States? Mike? So you you had a, a very, um, shall we say, rear guard attempt to crawl back into a, a, even a, a fighting position for this, this coveted uh, prize of whose country is more fucked up in the form of this Owen Jones tweet against Michael Gove for having works of David Irving on his bookshelf, which apparently um, Owen rather slimily insinuated made Michael Gove a Holocaust denier. I mean, the idea that that a, a public intellectual or I guess not even that, right, a, a comment writer in the UK in the 21st century can try to indict someone on the basis of what literature he's got on the shelf. Um, it's just extraordinary, man. So, yeah, I, I would say that there was a very, very minor um, spike for you guys, the UK, uh, but it's already dissipated and we're, we're back to, you know, Donald Trump is president, so there's no contest. I, on, on the book front, I've got um, really quite a lot of books by L. Ron Hubbard uh, in my bookshelves, and that would make me a Scientologist. No, you get books, and you have books by, by people who make arguments for the other side. I, I would say that um, what's been happening lately is that all of the, uh, the red tops... Um, all of them have been running uh, stories this morning saying the lockdown uh, will be over on Happy Monday. Uh, and so that's the great big story. And then suddenly uh, what's happening is that there, are, there are now anonymous briefings against that story, which was obviously briefed anonymously by Downing Street spin doctors, mm. because um, the policy now is not to break the lockdown on Happy Monday and there is a reverse ferret. So we are both, you know, locking down and being having more freedom of movement. Mm. This in Britain is a government of diarrhoea by diarrhoea. And I think at the moment the United Kingdom is more badly run than in the United States. And I would add to this, this, this whole furor about Neil Ferguson, uh, who for American listeners, I, I want to say is not Neil Ferguson, the historian that has made a name for himself in the United States, but a different Neil Ferguson, an epidemiologist in the UK, who had warned people to stay indoors, observe the protocols of self-isolation, and then was found on Tuesday to be having his girlfriend who actually is married to another person, although they claim they're in an open relationship, popping around to his place while he's giving interviews to the BBC, uh, instructing the entire country on how not to behave like Neil Ferguson. Um, and so he's been sacked, or I guess he had to resign from his government advisory role. And it seems like the tabloid Fleet Street Press in your country, John, is is really turning this into a, a sort of ridiculous 
example of, you know, uh, the, the liberal scolds hypocrisy and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, look, uh, is it more important that what this guy was suggesting, his his prescription for trying to contain this plague was correct and factually rigorous? Uh, or is it more important that he actually flouted his own medical advice and turned out to be, you know, um, somebody talking out of both sides of his mouth? I would say the, la- the, the former should take priority and the latter is just the kind of thing that, you know, titillate the masses. Um, but, you know, I see the libertarian right in particular really kind of sinking their teeth into this one. And I, I just have to say it, it, it strikes me as rather pathetic. You know, I expect people in public service to not do as they say. I expect hypocrisy. It's it's a lower vice on the on you know in in the uh, you know sort of order of priority of of, of sins and shortcomings. Um, yeah. Well, the other you, issue here, the other issue is that uh, is it possible that there are members of Boris Johnson's cabinet who have also been screwing around during the lockdown, but we yeah. don't know about them because it doesn't serve. Um, the newspaper barons' purpose. But let's bring in um, our mystery guest, um, mm. Chris Atkins. He's a seriously dangerous TV producer who knocked out a series of hard-hitting shows for British TV, including uh, BBC Panorama. And um, he wanted funding for a documentary film but got mixed up with the wrong kind of people and ended up being sentenced for five years for tax fraud. And he spent nigh on a year in Wandsworth Prison, one of the worst nicks in Britain. It's in South London, and it's seriously a bad place to be in prison. His book about his time inside, A Bit of a Stretch, is a bestseller. And it is probably the funniest book about being inside a prison ever written. Chris? Hello. Before we start, <laughs> we've, got to, um, we've got to tell our listeners this. It's Chris's birthday today. It is actually my... I never thought there'd be a more surreal way to spend my birthday than the two birthdays I spent in prison. But here, here I am, locked down yet again um, in, a, in a room talking to John Sweeney, um, virtually, of course. And Michael Weiss. And Michael so Weiss. I Chris, wouldn't you say, having to talk to John Sweeney on your birthday? I, I, I mean, prison was probably a better option, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris... Would you rather be British or American? Uh, oh, I think there's something intrinsically British about me. I mean, I grew up loving America because uh, obviously that was the sort of the popular culture that we were uh, e- exposed to as kids. And I spent a lot of time working in America and I, I, I sort of lived in around Miami for a little bit years ago. Uh, so I had a great time there. Um, and obviously the film business is, is very much sucking on the tit of America uh, financially, I guess, but I now can't go to America probably for the rest of my life because of, of the crime I've committed. So I think I'm going to have to pick Britain. <laughs> because you've got no fucking choice. Mm. What, what, uh, anyway, what tips? Um, we've got three or four listeners. What tips would you give to them about how to survive a lockdown? Because you're the expert. Um, well, the first thing, I mean, I try and be kind of upbeat about it, but but I would say, you know, you adapt very quickly to your new environment. So I think a lot of people saw the kind of lockdown coming like, like, a, like a dark shadow, you know, crossing the world, continent, country by country, continent by continent. Everyone was locking down and people were getting very anxious and upset about how they're going to survive. 
look, I went from a sort of freewheeling, you know, hedonistic lifestyle to suddenly being locked up in one of the worst prisons in Europe. And it was amazing how quickly I adapted to that environment and how quickly I overcame the anxieties about claustrophobia and, and all the other problems that prison faces. So after about three months inside, I, I was just living my life as though this is how I'd always did my life. And you, so you, you adapt to your new environments extraordinarily quickly. Um, I mean, the, the, the other thing is, um, I also found the biggest killer is uncertainty. <clears throat> Not knowing your fate is the worst possible thing, which is why I think a lot of the messaging by the government, the British government about, is lockdown going to end? Is it not going to end? Or we can't talk to you about how it's going to end and stuff. It's having a really negative impact on people's mental health because I think people can handle any kind of problem. I mean, even when people get given a fatal prognosis, they, they get very calm and, and relaxed about it because it's like, well, at least I know my fate now. What's worse is waiting for the prognosis. And I found waiting for my sentence actually worse than the sentence itself. So, yeah, certainty is is, is really, really important. What do you um? What tips would you give to people like Harvey Weinstein? How oh they how, how would you, how would you advise him? How how would you say, listen, Harvey, you're a good guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I I've I've little. I have to say, I I, I have little time. Uh, yeah, because my own experience in the film industry, where it was an open secret for years, and no one did anything about a sort of serial rapist in our in our in our midst. But to people, you know, to people in general on lockdown, I think there's things you can do to get through the day. Um, so I found when I was in prison that uh, routine was really, really important. Um, so if you sat and looked at the whole day in front of you with nothing to do, it, it could be kind of overwhelming and really, really depressing. But if I said, look, I'm going to do some exercise at 11, I'm going to read my book at 12, I'm going to listen to the news at 1, and then at two o'clock, I'm going to write a letter to my son. And then at, at four o'clock, I'm going to watch this show I want to watch on TV. You've sort of, you've broken up the day into sort of manageable packets, really. And, and, and stick to that routine. So each day, you know what you're going to do at a certain time. And it's weird. I'm still like that. So I still have cups of tea at the same time that I did when I was in prison. I've st- and I still always listen to the world at one religiously. And, and so I've, I've still got that routine. So it's very, very helpful to get through a day where there is intrinsically no routine. I, I, uh, Chris, do you ever sort of fantasize or, or, or worry that you might end up in prison? What again? No, sorry. I meant Michael. Actually. Oh, Michael, I was, um, losing my, um, losing my memory. <laughs> um, I've gone gaga. Mike, do you ever worry about being in prison? You know, it's funny, John, because I, I was reading um, actually for the purposes of my book, which is about something very different from coronavirus, as you know, Russian military intelligence and the history of the GRU. I decided to um, reread Darkness at Noon, uh, and I was doing it uh, in the midst of all this. And, you know, Kessler is is masterful at creating the sense of claustrophobia, just, you know, little things like um, pacing a, a room that's no bigger than, I don't know, like four feet by four feet kind of thing. Um, and then the, the prison yard exercise regimen, which is carefully um, monitored by guards in Stalin. Well, it wasn't Stalinist Russia. It was an unnamed country. But yeah, I mean, it was based on on Soviet um, uh, methods. And, and clearly the totalitarian regime was, was Stalinist Russia. But anyway, uh, reading that made me feel um, very 
anxious about all of this. And it's, and it's, it seems sort of hyperbolic and absurd, doesn't it? I mean, I can go outside my house. I can walk to a park. I can take my dog on the leash. I, there are things I can do that, that keep me from feeling like I am in a state of, of, of incarceration or imprisonment. But look, I mean, psychically, this does begin to take a toll. You know, you wake up every day and you know exactly the routine because you've been living it for two months, right? Uh, and I've, I've wondered occasionally, like, how someone like I would fare uh, under prison conditions. I, I don't think I would do very well. I think I'd, I'd, I'd do my head in very quickly. Um, maybe I would adapt, as Chris says, um, but I don't know. I, I think I, I need more expansiveness in my life. And I don't just mean geographically or physically. I mean, you know, I, I need to have options. I need to be able to read a book or watch a movie or, you know, play with my daughter, that, that kind of thing. So yeah, I, you know, I, it, it's, it, it actually does worry me a bit um, how I would, I would find myself in those conditions. It, it, it's interesting you say that, Michael, because yeah. there's one thing in there that you would never, ever deal with. Mm. which is your daughter. For me, it was my son. So the, the yeah. separation from my son was a constant, constant sort of open wound in my heart that yeah. solved the day I got out and he could come back into my life. But all the rest of it, you'd be amazed at how all that just vanishes from your horizon. Because mm. if you're not seeing it, like if I saw someone walk down my wing, my prison yeah. wing, holding a cappuccino, I'd think, fuck me, I really want a cappuccino. But I didn't because no one had one. So I stopped thinking yeah. about them in a sense. And and all the things that you're saying, it, it, they just go. It's so weird. You think they're so important. All these things you think are so important, they're actually not. The one thing that's important is like family and so forth. But um, uh, it's, so I wouldn't worry too much about that side. And, mm. and But it, it shines a light as well on like what is actually important in your life and what you do what yeah. is, 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 is actually you know meaningful to you. You know, you could read books. I mean, my God, that was all I did for the first month because I was just locked in my cell 23 hours a day. So I read, I took in with me, because you can take books in. So the night before I went in, I just went to my bookshelves and there was about 15 books there that I knew were good books. I knew that everyone had told me they were good books. I'd bought them. I just never read them. I never got around to reading them. So those were the 15 books I took in and I read them all in the first month. (laughs) So (laughs) that's the one thing you can do is read, read great literature. And there were books that I'd maybe started and got 10 pages in and got bored with because there was Twitter, there was mobile phone, there was the TV. But I, because I didn't have those things, I could then read more than the first 10 pages and just go, oh, my God, these books are amazing. So, yeah. How did you get on with the other prisoners? I mean, I, we're, we're, you know, I don't, I don't know how it worked in your situation where you put in with people who had. Uh, like yourself committed non-violent offenses or was it kind of a no, general it, in, in, initially you're all bundled in together so oh. initially i mean wandsworth is huge it's 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 uh, we call it a clearing jail which means that it's it services courts and some really big courts in london uh so they're processing prisoners all the time so you all just come in and you'll just get like cheek by jowl you're bundled in together so you don't have mm. any choice at first and I was very lucky, actually. My first cellmate was a proper sort of old school, maybe how people in America might see British criminals, you know, this sort of uh, uh, slightly Michael Caine-esque, <laughs> you know, old school villain, you know, out of a 1960s yeah. film. And he was, because he was quite old. So uh, he, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was a proper old school crimp. But, you know, a lot of the people in that place were mentally ill, they're drug addicts or they're Eastern European drug dealers. Mm. So you get bundled in with them. But it's interesting you ask that because quite quickly you gravitate towards people of a similar 
background to you. And for me, it was other middle class people. So mm-hmm. I gravitated towards um, bankers and accountants and city people because that's why they were in prison because they had committed financial crime. So they were, in a, we called it Little Hampstead, the corner of the wing I ended up in because a lot of us were from Hampstead, which is part of London where basically yeah. rich people live. And 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 so I, yeah, I, I then ended up sharing a cell with a guy who had been formerly a managing director of Deutsche Bank and he had been... <laughs> uh, have been done for insider trading and i know there it's, was some over here in the states if, if you've committed financial crimes of that magnitude for, for that kind of company you get a corporate or government bailouts so you don't get thrown into yeah the yeah, yeah but uh but there were some libel riggers and i know libel rigging was uh, was a bit of a thing in america there was one guy who was american actually he came at the same time as me so there's a lot of libel riggers who were done so i i gravitated towards them i shared a cell with these guys but because Wandsworth was such condensed environment there's like 1600 prisoners in there not a massive amount of space you're all very cheek by jowl so i would go and chat and hang out with the muslim guys or the young black kids are all in gangs um and and all the sort of the drug dealer types and you just chat to them there wasn't any oh you're not from my kind of neck of the woods you didn't have any choice you were all so close together you'd end up talking to these guys so i i i kind of interacted with a with a whole strata of society that i would never normally interact with mm. i might interview them for 20 minutes for a film i was doing but i wouldn't live with them um so it, it, it exposed me to whole different areas of you know to human experience that i would never have normally come to contact with and you didn't feel intimidated you weren't bullied by them i mean you know the the, the stories out of prison life are a well-bred middle-class yeah. guy or, or legend. And there've been TV shows made about this sort of thing. I mean, what, what was your experience? It, I mean, it, this, yeah, it's not what you, th- it's all, almost, it's like the opposite of what you think. So that question you've asked me, it's been asked to me by lots and lots of people. Almost from the first day I went in, everyone's like, Oh my God, you're this, are you going to be bullied and all this kind of stuff? And the answer is no, because I, there's a lot of violence in prison. I won't sugarcoat it, but the violence is very targeted and specific. So they weren't just attacking people for the hell of it. They were attacking them because they hadn't paid their tobacco bill. They've been borrowing tobacco smoke or burn or whatever you want to call it from other people and they hadn't paid it back. So they get a a beating for that or they uh, hadn't paid their drugs debts or there was a beef with the officers or something like that. But if you just stayed out of all that, you were never really targeted. And after a while, I got a job of, uh, I got this very weird job in prison which I think, I don't know if you have it in America, but in Britain, they're called listeners. Now, listeners are like in-prison counsellors. So our Mm. job was to um, help and comfort and console other inmates who were suicidal because of the big suicide problem in British prisons. So they train trusted inmates like me to be listeners. So if another prisoner is thinking that they might kill themselves or self-harm or they're just really losing their mind, they can call to speak to a listener and I would sit in a room with them and talk to them for an hour and just by talking to them and listening to their problems, they would calm down and they'd be less likely to kill themselves. So I did. Th- I got that job quite quickly. It was something that really interested me. So I did that job. And then when you're a listener, it's like you're in this special place in the prison because you're the only person who's helping these prisoners. So they're not going to attack you because you're the only you're their only friend, basically. So, no, I didn't. I didn't really. I was very frightened at first. I was very scared of violence. But after a while, I just as I said, I adapted I got very, very used to my environment and I started helping people. And if you're going to help them, they're probably not going to punch you. Uh, Chris, tell, um, tell everybody uh, the story at the very beginning of your book, um, which is about particle physics. 
So I, I opened the, the book with this story, but it's actually a story that happened after I'd been there about six months and I was working as a listener and I was working, I was watching, I think I was watching the Shawshank Redemption actually, bizarrely, because it was on film four, but it's a channel on TV. So we had a TV in the room and they kept showing the Shawshank Redemption and I kept watching it, which you think is surreal because it's like you're in prison, why watch a film about prison? But anyway, and, and the officer came and knocked on the door and said, we've got a, a listener call out for you. And I said, look, it's not my shift because we did shifts. And I said, it's not my shift. He said, none of the other listeners will talk to him. They're all scared of him. And, and me being a journalist, I went, oh, this guy sounds interesting. <laughs> Why will no one else talk to him? So I got my notebook and I went and, and, and sat with him. And he was properly crackerjack. I mean, he really, really was. He was off the reservation. He was Colonel Kurtz and, and then some. Um, but he knew a lot about quantum physics. So I... I I didn't want to start talking to him about his feelings straight away. He, he wanted to talk about quantum physics. And as I, I studied physics at Oxford, that's a weird thing about my past. So I knew about quantum physics. So we talked about waves and particles and, and uh, uh, the uncertainty principle and Heisenberg and all this stuff. And, um, and then he said, I think I want to open up now. And I thought, well done me, because I've got to know him through quantum physics. And we built a rapport and I'm, I'm really connecting with him now. So I leaned in and said, what do you want to tell me? And he just said, Sing me a song or I'll slit your throat. <laughs> uh, and I went, okay, that, the session's over now. <laughs> Time to call an officer. Um, which I have to say well, didn't happen that often. I started the book with that is because it's quite a shocking thing, but quite, I, I wasn't often th- threatened like that. And he didn't really mean it, you know. It's like, he was just mad as a hatter. So. Oh, I um, that prison, I mean, it, it's it's sort of ironic, isn't it? Because, you know, we're we're comparing this to a state of, quarantine, self-isolation, whatever you want to call it. But on the other hand, you're, you're actually forced into a different form of society or a, a, a kind of sub-society in prison where you're interacting with people you would never yeah. interact with outside of jail walls, right? Yeah. I mean, would you say that, because it, it's, it's strange, you, you, you began by, by talking about, you know, the little corner of the place where, where you called it Hampstead because you were all, yeah, with, yeah, you know, yeah. minded or, or similarly educated um, middle-class people. But there seems to be a bit of a leveling effect too, if you're having huge to level up. Huge yeah. Level. Yeah. Describe and, and, that. And, well, and I mean, it, it was a very, very, very busy place and I wasn't lonely. I think a lot of my friends on the outside were thought, oh, Chris, he's locked up in prison. He's very, very lonely. And I was at first. But once I got in my groove and I got to Little Hampstead and I started working as a listener and I also took another job. Honestly, I collected jobs like, like a general collects medals, honestly, because each job got you a bit more respect, got you out into a different bit of the prison, got you more time out your cell, more power, basically. It's all about power. And so I had like 10 jobs at one point. And one of the other jobs I did was I worked on the induction wing as the education orderly, which meant I tested the English and math levels of all the new arrivals in the prison. So as soon as people came to the prison, they went through a whole induction process. And one of those things was we would test their English and maths so that if they they were educationally low, which most of them were. You could try and get them on literacy classes or numeracy classes and stuff like that. But for me, I did it because it meant I got to meet all the new people coming into the prison. Because I was like, as a journalist, I was like, well, this is the this is the place to be to get everyone's stories. Um, so I, I was doing that. So it meant I was sort of out and about so much. It's a very very social place, and so you you're kind of thrust in with so many people, and you're constantly meeting new people. So it's. It, and sometimes you wish they'd just go away. Some of you just want to be on your own and you can't be. You've got, you've got to talk to these yeah. idiots. So uh, it, 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 you've got to try and imagine the scale of the place. There's a church near me. 
huge Catholic church. It's like a proper old school. It's all, it's not quite a cathedral, but it's not far off. And every time I ride past on my bike, I go, that's like a Wandsworth wing. And the massive places, there's like 500 people on one wing, 600 pe- 1,600 people in the whole prison. So there's just, you're constantly surrounded by people. So you're not lonely. And it, 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 people from every walk of life are just tumbling in. And you're all wearing the same clothes. You're all wearing the same shit food. You all want the same thing. You want to get out for a phone call and a shower. So it's, there's a huge kind of leveling effect to it. And because everyone's fighting the system, there's very much an us against them feeling. So as long as I would help people in their own personal battle against the system, normally by filling out a form for them, there's a lot of paperwork in prison. So I would always fill out applications and forms for people because a lot of them are literate. And that would then ingratiate me with them. And we'd be, we'd have a shared goal, which is, you know, do you want more visits? Do you want to get out your cell more? You know, whatever you want a phone call, you've got to fill in a form. So yeah, you were just plunged into this sort of toxic whirlpool of humanity and it was very colourful and it was very energetic. People always used to write to me saying, I'll bet time's passing really slowly for you. And I went, no, it's the opposite. Time passed so quickly in Wandsworth. Because hmm. I was so busy. I was so kind of manic and doing all these different things, engaged with all these different bits of the prison that you'd wake up and another week had gone by and you were like, oh God, I can, I can do this because time is just whizzing by. Because I was so, you know, it was a hotbed of... of of, of sort of sin and depravity, really. But I've, I'm a journalist and filmmaker, so I found all that really interesting. I was going to ask too. Do, do you keep in touch with any of the uh, your, your fellow inmates now that you're yeah, out? Yeah, there's a lot of WhatsApp groups that I'm uh, I'm oh. on. There's sort of people who've been in different nicks and people who are you know out and about now. And you know, it's a support network as well because it's very very difficult. I mean, they can't all walk out of prison and get a book deal and do all the stuff I've done. It, for the rest of them, it's very hard. I always like to say that like, I'm very, very lucky and fortunate with what happened to me. But a lot of people coming out of prison find it difficult. One of them said to me the other day, he said, you know, your sentence really starts when you get out the gate. It's a very bleak mm. thing to say, but it's inside prison. You kind of you're busy, you're doing stuff, there's stuff going on. And then you get out and suddenly it's like, no, you can't get a job because you've got a criminal record. Yeah. You can't get a girlfriend because you've got a criminal record and life's really shit, basically. So we all kind of message each other on WhatsApp and try and give each other support and help where we can. Mm. On this, this, this strange thing about how um, you help other people in prison. In 88, I went, when I worked for the Observer, I went undercover uh, to communist Czechoslovakia and I met Václav Havel, who'd just come out of prison. He was a janitor. He became president of uh, Czecho um, the, following, um, the, the following year. Um, but I said, uh, what was it like? What was it like in prison, Václav? And he said, well, listen, so I'm banged up. I'm on a writer and the guy inside, he's got a terrible love life because his, his missus is, is straying or whatever. And so Václav says, listen, I'll dictate a letter for you. And he dictates this beautiful, erotic, wonderfully powerful love letter to his cellmate's, um, missus. And, um, and the guy says, Vaslav, that's fantastic. And then a few days later, he said, listen, I've got a problem with my appeal. And then Vaslav writes this powerful um, uh, statement of the man's innocence. And the guy is incredibly grateful. And then a couple of days later, he, he sidles up to Vaslav and says, hey, listen, I've got to write a report on you for the secret police. What should I say? <laughs> so, 
I've always, I've always, I mean, I loved, but by the way, he, he chain smoked the whole way through the interview so that I felt like a beagle at the end of this thing. And I can remember stepping out on the, on the pavement um, in Prague and thinking, God, I need to breathe. So he was, he was bad for your lungs, but he was a wonderful and great man. But I always felt, um, having listened to Václav, that if I ever do get banged up, then then I would do exactly that and push it a bit. And a couple of times when I've been arrested in places like uh, Zimbabwe and all of that kind of stuff, I've uh, I've done that. But Chris, uh, uh, for example, you you um, um, came across there were some uh, there were some uh, quite a few Muslims in prison, but there were also some kind of heavy people as well. Yeah. What what was their attitude, their approach to, for example? Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is the the the, the joke that seems to have sort of stuck is um, you've got to remember that like it was it was it was a constant battle to get out your cell, like because of the cuts to public services which came in through the austerity measures following the financial crash, the the budget to prisons was slashed hugely, and the consequence of that was they just laid off a lot of, or fired retired a lot of officers. The prison population stayed the same. The number of officers went down by about 30%. And it just meant that that just meant more and more prisoners spent far more time locked in their cells. So when I was in Wandsworth, the majority of the prison, about 80% of the prison approximately, was locked in their cells 23 hours a day. And and that was what I suffered for the first month. And then I got into my little Hampstead clique and I worked out to get my jobs. And then I got out of my cell and it was fine. But for most people who didn't have that kind of sharp elbowed middle class way of dealing with stuff, they were just locked in their cells all day. So the, the battle for everyone was just to get out. It didn't matter what, you just get out to do anything as well, just spend some time not locked in your cell. And it meant that that there was a group of Muslims on my wing who all joined Alcoholics Anonymous, even <laughs> though they were teetotal and they'd never drunk in their lives. But they all went to the AA meetings because that's where they would get to hang out with their mates. And well, and literally okay. prison prison is it's, it's a dark and depressing, traumatic place. But it's also very, very funny. And and literally I saw humor and farce like that, that it's like, who could write something like that? So that's I why remember. I was doing all this into the book, because it was just it was insane, that stuff. I, it's funny you say this because um, when I was doing my ISIS book, I interviewed a, a general, American general who was in charge of the um, theater wide internment facilities in Iraq. And uh, when he took when he came to take that position, he realized that the prison system, the Americans had construction constructed under occupation was completely fucked because what was happening is you're getting petty criminals you know, young kids who, you know, nick someone's wallet in the in the marketplace being thrown in with hardened jihadists and Islamist mm-hmm. theologians and uh, the young kids who were already kind of obviously wayward and their life hadn't really turned out the way they'd hoped would just be lured to them like moths to a flame and would and the prison was actually acting as a radicalization agent. Fathers, did you notice anything like that? People Usually. sort of. Religion. I mean, I mean, there was on the on the jihadi side a, a bit. Yeah, um, it, it, you would um, see certain lads who had just young Asian kids, basically, and and they were in for some petty crime, and they'd go off to the Friday prayers, and they'd come back with some pretty 
you know, sinister, disturbing views that they'd picked up in, in, in Friday prayers. That was, there was an element of that. I mean, the, but by far the bigger problem was just crime in general. That mm. people were making contacts and making connections in prison with, as you say, criminals who are far more uh, higher up the ladder of, of, of offending. So people yeah. would be in for some very small time drug problem and they would then meet people who were actually importing kilos into the country. And and they wouldn't stop thinking, going, well, hang on, you're in prison. So you obviously got caught. So you're not very good at it. They would right. sit down and listen to their stories of the kind of cars they drove and the parties they went to and the, and the holidays they went on. And they were thinking, my God, I want a bit of that. It's like attending a TED talk for being yeah. a better. There yeah. really was. I would sit and there would be people in my cell because I once I got to be a listener, I had a very large cell which had a little kind of seating area. I don't want to oversell it, but it was it was quite nice. And 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 because there wasn't like a common room or sit, uh, on my wing, so my cell kind of became the common room. So all these people would just come in and sit. And they were very respectful. I never got any. They were just there because there were some nice chairs and people would sit and chat. So I would be kind of washing up or getting changed or whatever. And next to me, there was some guy talking about how he was beating the system, how he was evading capture from the National Crime Agency or, or encrypting his messages or whatever it is. And there'd be five other kind of junior criminals sitting next to him, taking notes, literally going, oh. And then when people would leave the prison, it was so funny. It's like, uh, it's like the real world, but like mangled. You know, when people, it's like the last day of work and everyone comes up and says goodbye. And like, oh, you know, let me get me your email. Let me get your Instagram, your WhatsApp. Let's stay in touch. They would do that in prison. So when someone left, everyone was like, oh, yeah, let me get your WhatsApp, your Instagram. So they can connect on the outside and do some fucking crime together, basically. And it was this process. Everyone would just scroll down. Often their mother's number, because drug dealers change their telephone numbers a lot. So they'd always give out their mum's number because they'd know how to get in touch with them. So I've got a lot of drug dealers' mothers' numbers, bizarrely. But uh, it, 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 no, absolutely. And so the it, 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 prisons are supposed to prevent crime, and they do yeah. the opposite. In Britain, anyway, they do the opposite. They they inflate it, and I saw that firsthand. It was just it was incredible. I mean, it's supposed to rehabilitate, but it sounds like instead of rehabilitation, it's it's actually facilitation of criminality yeah. more. Anything, okay, you yeah. said it far more uh, in, in a far more erudite way than I did in my book, but yeah, no, absolutely, it was people were going in there and walking out more likely to commit crime rather than less. And you know, that's for a whole host of reasons. I think if prisons were more fair and just and humane, then it wouldn't engender that. But your people are sitting there and they're not getting out for a shower. They're not allowed to call their families. They're not allowed to do the, legi- the the legitimate things that they want to do. Mm. And therefore they think, well, fuck the system, fuck the state. How can I strike back? Oh yeah, let's commit some more crime. So it, I, I got into the mindset that I could see why they were like, why should I care about society? Because society wants to screw me over. So I, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, help and be a, a, a contributing member of the community. And there's one thing that always stuck with me on this, that when I was at open prison, which is a very different experience, open prisons are like kind of day camps for, for ex-offenders because you get to go out into the community and there's no gates or anything like that. And it's, and, and, and it's for low-risk prisoners or people towards the end of their sentence. And so when I was at open prison, there was a big snow 
storm. This was, I think, in uh, 2017, 2018, that Christmas. I think early 2018, there was a horrendous snowstorm hit Britain and the whole prison got snowed in. And they put out a, an announcement because they have this like in public address system with speakers everywhere. So they put out an announcement saying all the officers' cars have been snowed in and they're looking for volunteers from the prisoners to come and help dig them out. And, and amazingly, no one turned up. Do you know what I mean? And and because they're not very civically minded people, it's like, hang on, these are the officers who have just screwed them over for the last ten years of their life, and now you want them to help you dig their cars out, and everyone just laughed and sat in their beds. No one, and it was obvious that that would be the 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 response. But it was it was it was the weird that the prison thought that these people would want to come forward and volunteer to help their the, the people who've been bullying them all this time. So, um, I, Chris's. Um... A sense of the absurd, which was always strong, was heightened in prison. And uh, tell the story, the letter you wrote where we, um, I sent him emails and he could write to me. And uh, uh, Chris's letters were, uh, not just to me, but to all of his friends and family, were, were part of the, the staple of the book, I think, in terms of um, uh, putting across the hilarity of it all. Tell the story about the TV show you you, you saw you you wrote to me about. Oh my god! Well, th- I mean, that was the oddest thing in a way because I I, I I was quite unique in Wandsworth because I, I as I said I'd, I'd had this career in journalism and film and media and 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 so forth. So I, I I was able to sit and obviously one of the few things you can do in prison is just watch TV because you have a TV in your room. So it was very very strange for me to be sitting there in these cells. And I'd watch the TV and one of my mates would come on the telly. And sometimes I would say to the prisoners, oh, you know, I know that. You know, that's, that's, that's a friend of mine. But it, things, the prisoners are all bullshit all the time. So they just always assumed I was lying. I was like, no, I do. I do actually know these people. And quite often it would be a sense of jealousy. It would be like, I'm sat here. I'm in this prison. I've got the next two and a half years of my life behind bars. I'm fucked. And it was really depressing because I'd see them doing really, really, really well probably see where this is going and then there was one show i saw that john sweeney came on to which made me feel a whole lot better about my situation because it was it was on channel five which i don't know if you've got an equivalent in america but it's it's not you know it's not hbo you know it's 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 <laughs> it's low down it's it's towards the bottom end of of your channel hopping uh uh experience and and it was a, a clip show where people basically go on and they talk about crazy things they've done on TV. And John talked about the moment that he's probably most famous for, which is where he went mental at some Scientologists and screamed at them. And and this was this was a kind of integral part of uh, of John's John's myth and, and backstory. So John was on there talking about this clip, which I've seen a million times, and everyone's seen a million times. And uh, and so I thought, well, maybe life's not so bad because at least I'm not on Channel Five, basically. So uh, I wrote <laughs> I, on the spot. I got my pen and paper out and wrote a letter to John, going, "I thought I'd fucked up my career, but Jesus, you know, you've really gone down the pan." That reminds me of the um, the the Clive James poem titled "The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered," which I, <laughs> I always always fish out when I'm feeling low. And I, I'm doing a bit of a social media troll of all the people I hate. As long as their books are in the remainder bin, I'm unhappy. But it was, a, look, I mean, using that element of dark humor and using that was a real coping mechanism. And, that, you know, people go, we go back to talking about the start, about how do you survive these traumatic, and it is traumatic, the current lockdown. And it's just find the humor and everything, you know, laugh. And, and you read the, 
the Wipers Times, you know, this amazing uh, play that Ian Hislop did in the UK about soldiers in the First World War who were all facing their deaths and they were writing these crazy satirical magazines in the First World War trenches. And you read them and they're absolutely hilarious. And they're joking about getting blown up. They're joking about idiotic generals. They're joking about getting scurvy and lice and being gassed and and all the things they were facing. They're all making these brilliant jokes about it. So that, you know, that's what I did is I found the the, the humor in the darkest places. And that, that completely got me through. I remember once I interviewed a couple who'd, uh, who'd been in the Bassa clan and they hid amongst the dead pretending to be dead. And I interviewed them and they were, they were in a mess. And I said, right, um, after this, you're coming for dinner with us. And the, uh, there were a couple, she was uh, French, she was British. And she was so scared that she wanted to um, um, have a view of the, um, of the window out the restaurant. So if, if somebody passed, she could see that they were a threat. And, and I said, fine. And I put... Um, uh, Dave Langan, who's the tallest cameraman in the BBC, six foot nine, enormous bloke, and then me, and I'm a fatty and quite big, and then another big fat producer. So she couldn't see. And then when the waiter said, what, what do you want to drink? And I said, five bottles of red, uh, Cote de Rome, uh, the posh one. And, uh, and then off we went. And, and the guy said, you know, like, my sense of humor has become so dark. And I said, no, 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 this is a shield. This is a shield. Mm. Treasure a dark sense of humor. It's a shield. And at the end of the evening, the guy said to me, you know, John, this was so funny. It was almost worth it. And, and it's one of the weirdest but proudest moments of my, of my reporting career that, that, that's, that all I said to the guy was, when you think dark humour, you go for it because it's going to help you in some yeah. weird way. Yeah, and it gets you through. I mean, my friend Martin, who is the um, former managing director of Deutsche Bank, he, he's, <laughs> he's uh, I still can't believe that's true. But anyway, he, um, we talk a lot about it after the event because it's like a trauma. You've got to get over your trauma. So we talk, you know, we can connect on it because it's like, you know, we were there, man. It's like Vietnam. You weren't there. And... You know, he says to me again and again, like, that was the worst experience of my life. But I've never laughed as much as the time I spent in a cell with you. Because we just clicked. And we liked sharing with Sweeney. I, I, we just clicked. And we would just laugh. And it was almost like I'd see something insane on the wing. And it's like, I couldn't wait to get back to tell Martin. And he'd have seen something. He'd be like, no, no, you, no, I want to tell my story. No, you, I want to tell my story. And stuff. And it was just like, and we just did silly things to make each other to make each other laugh. There was a guy um, who was just this notorious bigot. I mean, he was a real, he was racist, he was homophobic and uh, transphobic, Islamophobic. He was just this absolute, like, complete throwback to the 1950s. Real bigot. And and the prison made him equalities representative. They put him in charge of equality <laughs> on, on the wing. And I was like, this is, this is gold. Everyone else was saying this is terrible. I was like, no, this is brilliant. This is literally the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm going to write this down. It's, it is extraordinary where that where, where gallows humor kind of pops up. I mean, one of my favorite jokes is I, I think it was adapted from Tsarist Russia for the Holocaust, and it goes: two Jews in the Warsaw ghetto are planning to assassinate Adolf Hitler, who they get wind is is touring the ghetto tomorrow at noon. 
So they manage to smuggle away a rifle, probably stolen from some SS guard. They climb up onto the rooftops and they wait. Noon passes, no Hitler. 12.30, still no Hitler. 1 p.m. hits, no Hitler. One Jew turns to the other and says, gee, I hope nothing happened to him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, without that kind of thing, you can't, you you really cannot survive in the modern world or any world, frankly, medieval world, Christ, even worse. I mean, you you need to to be able to have a laugh even in the darkest of circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good connection as well. And, and, you know, people, it's like the question you asked me earlier, like, how did you, you're such a fish out of water. You're so different from the standard person who's going in there. And I was, I'm, you know, I don't make any bones about that, but you know, what ingratiated me with all these other prisoners very, very quickly was humor. And it was humor where, you know, and I've written humor and comedy enough to like, always know your target, you know, and, and yeah. the target was always the officers. The target was always the system. So if yeah. I could make a joke with some of these other prisoners at the expense of an officer or something like that, which wouldn't have got me like signed up to a BBC to make a pilot. But in that situation is like, trust me, it's like an award-winning fucking joke. Um, and they would laugh and I would laugh with them and it would create a connection and a human bond that might've taken weeks to do just if we just chatted about non-humor stuff. So it's a good, it's a good way to kind of connect to people and just say, look, I get it. I'm on your side. We've both got the same. We've both got the same problem here. Let's try and get through this. Uh, Chris, how do you think uh, Donald Trump would handle prison? I mean, like all these, I mean, you know, there is this uh, all this stuff going around. If you remember about the proroguing of Parliament here in the UK with the whole Brexit crisis, you know, God, it seems like a lifetime ago, but last summer, where it's shown that um, bring it back. Yeah, no, exactly. I missed the indicative votes. Um, but, uh, you know, they'd found that the British, it's kind of astonishing to say this, but the British Prime Minister had illegally paroled Parliament, shut down Parliament, it went to Supreme Court, and they all ruled that no, this is basically, it was, it was illegal. That wasn't criminal, it was unlawful. But And so everyone was saying, oh, Johnson's going to prison, Johnson's going to prison. And I remember tweeting jokes about this going, he don't get your hopes up, he's going to do really well in prison. Trust me, <laughs> someone like him. The same with Trump. You know, because that level of sort of self-confidence, you know, brashness, they're all people, people like what's no matter what you say about Boris Johnson, and Donald Trump, they gravitate people. They've got a magnetic sense of personality. That means that people believe them and people respond to them and they've got no shame and they've got no guilt and that people like that thrive in prison. So trust me, within six months, Donald Trump would be running the place, unfortunately. So critically, uh, Chris, um, I've got a bet uh, for 500 quid um, for Joe Biden to beat Donald Trump. Do you think I'm going to win or lose? Oh, my God. I mean, like in the old days, like I'm a big fan of American politics. My father was a history and politics teacher and he was obsessed with American politics. So I've always sort of followed this. And, you know, so from what I've seen in a, in a rudimentary way, it just follows the fortunes of the economy, doesn't it? So if the economy is doing well, they get a second term. The economy is doing badly, they don't get a second term. So it was odds on for Trump to do well. It didn't matter what he said or did. Everyone's used to him saying mad shit. Economy is doing well. He's going to get in a second time. And now, obviously, the virus crisis has hit and and it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not looking good for him, I guess. From, from that pure metric alone, my gut is uh, Trump won't get it in again because there's this massive spike in unemployment and obviously there's going to be a recession and that generally knocks out the incumbents. So I'm 
I'm probably going to bet on Biden. <laughs> Correct answer. By the way, I'm drinking a rather nice. Um, what are we all drinking? I'm drinking a um, a red wine from Waitrose Nero di Troia. Um, it's going down. What are you drinking, Chris? Uh, I'm drinking Cabernet Sauvignon Les Hommes de Cambras. Oh, you're making up a lot of time there. That sounds rather posh. Yeah. Yeah, John did Waitrose. I mean, God, that's... Yeah, I know you've done your war zones, John. I know you've been shot at in Serbia and and, and arrested in Afghanistan, but that's got to be nothing compared to getting into a British supermarket at the moment. I mean, <laughs> honestly. Mike, what are you drinking? Uh, so I ha- I've had to downgrade. You see, I- I've noticed that... Um... My fellow countrymen are spending quarantine getting fit, and there's been a run on um, Peloton fitness machines, which I can't afford. So my goal is just not to go broke or get fat. So instead of my usual Bombay Sapphire, I'm just doing the regular uh, Bombay dry gin, which is cheaper and doesn't taste as good. But, you know, these are straightened times. What can I tell you? Um, Good. So um, what we should do is encourage um, our free followers uh, of the last call, Two Boozy Hacks on Twitter, to um, if when they listen to the show, they should tweet what they're drinking. Um, so uh, we encourage that. And also the um, Muslim members of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> they should also buy my book. I thought that's the moment we're going to plug my book, John, but obviously not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but by the way, as I said in my intro, the... Um, I think um, I genuinely think this, and it's annoying, and I don't want to uh, blow smoke up his ass, as they say in America. But I genuinely think a bit of a stretch is the funniest book uh, about being in prison I've ever read. And remember, the competition is, I think, Darkness at Noon. Um, <laughs> Victor, and, Victor Serge's uh, novel, Men in Prison, which is sorry, funny. Victor Serge. He was a Russian revolutionary, allied with the Bolsheviks, but then broke with them, wrote a very excellent memoir. Um, he's the guy, he, actually, he's most famous for having authored uh, The Case of Comrade Tuleyev, but that's part of a, a, a novel series. So the one of the, I think the first one in that series is called Men in Prison, and it's, it draws from his own experience being locked up by the czarist um, police. Uh, so it deals with political prisoners and also them having to deal with or engage with the more lumpen elements of of prison life, as as uh, Chris was talking about. So that's a very good novel as well. Yeah, but it's a. It, but how many gags are in it, Mike? No, it's not it's not funny. Neither is Darkness at Noon. So we're, we're you know Chris has the uh, he, he's cornered the market on on humorous prison memoirs. Yeah, uh, I think I'm the only prison humorous prison memoir. I think, I think you must be. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, certainly the, you're the only um, um, a prison humorist who did particle physics at Oxford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on top of that list. Point. On top of that list. So, I, I'm, I mean, the lockdown. Do you think anybody will there ever come a moment where some people like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson have to face the music? for the mistakes they've made over the virus? Uh, Look, I don't know enough about American politics. I think we saw with the uh, impeachment process that happened just before the lockdown, we saw the gaping holes in that process, which is basically you're judged by your political allies who, funnily enough, 
don't <laughs> don't take that judgment process very seriously. Um, you know, history is the great judge, and I think in fifty years' time, when we're all dead and buried, history will write the book, and 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 it will be damning uh, about what happened in America, and to a lesser extent in the UK. I think in the UK there's a bit more teeth, and I think there inevitably will be a public inquiry into this. And I, funny enough, there was a, a, a public inquiry that I participated in. There was a Leveson inquiry into Rupert Murdoch and the whole closure of the news of the world and stuff. And I was got quite heavily involved in that process as a, as a, as a witness. And, you know, they, they, there was real teeth to those things. You know, they can compel people to attend. And it's not like Parliament where they stand up and, you know, wave their papers around and make some silly gags and run away. You know, you're on the stand with the QC and I've, I've also been cross-examined as a defendant in a criminal trial by a very good barrister, you know, and there's no secrets there. So I think that in Britain, there will be a reckoning. It might take a long time, but as we saw with the Iraq war, there was a public inquiry into that and the, and the result was damning. And I think that, I think that the, the, the same will happen in this and all of Matt Hancock's spin about 100,000 tests and all Boris Johnson's spin about how we were led by the science, but couldn't be bothered to turn up to any COBRA meetings. I think all that will come out and it will be it will be eviscerating of, of the record of this current government in, in what they not so much what they're doing now. I think what they do now is just they're just trying to get through. But I think in the months it's to build up to it where we could see what was happening in China, we could see what was happening in Italy and they were sitting on their hands. I think I think their behavior in those early months will be will be eviscerated. One of the worst things. I, I read lots of books about World War II. I don't know why. Um, but um, one of the most terrifying accounts is of people who were stuck in prison listening to bombs fall. Mm. And, they, uh, and I feel desperately sorry for prisoners who've done something silly or stupid or wrong, clearly wrong in their lives, but they're now locked up in you know, petri dishes for the virus. Mm. What okay. do you think the British and American government should do to prisoners who are locked up right now? I, I, I think in America, they do seem to be being more humane to prisoners than in Britain, which is it's a rare thing to say, because, you know, in America, they've got the death penalty and they have three strikes and you're out and people are incarcerated for 50 years for things that would get you five years in Britain. So it's odd that even even in this dark times america is being more humane to prisoners in terms of letting people out early and letting you know having video calls from the cells and stuff like that where in britain just nothing is happening they said they were going to let out four thousand prisoners the minister the minister of prisons said we're going to try and release four thousand prisoners early just a couple of months early to free up space in the prison system and stop the spread of the virus and they've i think they've let out about 50 and actually more prisoners have now died in British prisons from coronavirus than have been let out under this early release scheme. So it is, it's, it's abominable what's happening. And, and actually, they've, they've stopped all visits. They've stopped all independent monitoring. And, and the prison system has just kind of been paralysed in how it's, how it's going to do. Like Iran has been more humane than Britain. Iran has let out, I think, five or 10,000 prisoners. And it's not often we can point to Iran and go, they've got a better record on human rights than we have. Um, By the so way, in, you know, in Britain, it's horrendous. I, 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 I actually really love doing this podcast because every now and then, uh, because we speak so freely, there's a piece of information that sort of shoots you between the eyes. And the idea that we should look up to Iran 
for uh, proper human rights is something that's no. a bit weird, but but in this it's true. Uh, Michael, are we talking nonsense in the American prison system? I think I'd rather be locked up in a British prison at the moment than an American prison. What do you think? I mean, it's not really an area I've investigated. I, I, I know of um, some very good journalists who've written books on things such as the privatization of American prisons and the various catastrophes that that have uh, that that's led to. Um, no, I, I can't really say, uh, you know, we've got this, you know, fabulous um, facility here that you, you, anyone would kill to be locked up in for a few years. I mean, prison life in, in the U S again, much of it is derived from popular culture shows like the HBO series, Oz, which was on in the nineties. I remember that. Um, yeah. Not, you know, it, I, I wouldn't say the American prison system is the envy of the world. I don't have a basis for comparison. I mean, most of what I know about UK prisons, apart from what Chris just told us, come from um, also basically popular culture uh, in the name of the father, right? I think they locked him up in, was it Belmarsh? Also the Julian Assange saga, which I follow closely, and his mm. he manages to get RT camera crews into his cell, but... Uh, he's claiming that he's a victim of human rights violations. So go figure. No, I don't know. I, I have no. I have no answer to that question, John. I I wouldn't want to be in either system. The the um the big great cultural thing in Britain is porridge, which was this mm. wonderful uh, melancholic bit of sweet thing um, with Rodney Barker and um, uh, what was the lad's name? Beckinsale. I've forgotten his first name. Oh God, uh, God, Godber, Godber. That was the character. Yes, um, Kate Beckinsale's and, father. Funny enough, but yes, I know exactly. Yeah. What you mean. And he he died tragically early of Very a heart early, attack. Yeah. But but the this was was a bittersweet um, uh, prison story, and there were two guy uh, two guards, two screws. One was Mister Barraclough, who was nice but soft. Nice, screw, and then there was another yeah. one called Mister Mackay, who was Scottish. And fucking terrifying, and this this sense of an all powerful bully was a kind of embodiment of fascism, um, and you just thought, oh God, I wouldn't want to, to do that. But then at the same time, listening to people like Václav Havel and his moral equivalent, Chris Atkins, <laughs> the, <laughs> the that it's possible to be inside the prison system and yet subvert it, and and that I think is. Um, I, I, thus far in my life, I haven't had the opportunity, but it's it's something I no. But it I, also teaches you that it is it's you know the, the the way the media deals with things, the way that a lot of it deals with things is a very very simple narrative approach, which is good guys and bad guys. And it, it, one of the things that you kind of learn from prison more is is that it, just life isn't like that, and people aren't like that. So good people do bad things. And 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 it, 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 just because someone's done something wrong and they've gone to prison, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily a bad person. They're not like that all the time. So and and bad and bad people do good things. Yeah, too. yeah, very much. And so I'll give you two examples. So when I was um, when I got to open prison, when I was at Spring Hill, which is my final open prison that I was in, I was on basically the best landing. It took me not long to get onto. I was on a really really good landing because it was all single cells. I had a computer in my cell. It was a cell. It was a room, basically. And I had a computer in my room because I was doing an open university degree in psychology. So I had a computer in my room. I also used to write my book. 
and I had a sh- like a little ensuite shower. I mean, it, look, it wasn't great, but it was it was grubby. But it was my own little space, and it was the best place. It was the best landing to be on. And most of the people on that landing had killed someone, so they were either in for murder or manslaughter. Because a lot of lot of people have been in prison for life. I mean, not the whole life, but they've been in prison for 15, 20 years. They've got to go through open prison in order to to be seen to be safe enough to be released. So all the most of the people on my landing had had killed someone, and it was the best place to be. They were totally chilled people. Now it was twenty years before when they'd done that horrible act, but they'd all spent a long time in the system. They really respected the system, and they were calm and quiet. And you could leave your door open, and they wouldn't give you any hassle if you lent them a tin opener. You get it straight back. They were just good people to deal with. And then you go to the other landings, the other bits in the open prison, and there are people who are in on you know. 10 month sentences who were an absolute nightmare to deal with and they'd done something which is comparatively minor in terms of their crime but in terms of who they were you just wouldn't spend any time on those landings because they were just real assholes so that's the you know good people do bad things but then on the flip side of that there was a, a, a an officer in in wandsworth which is the first prison i was in which is what the book's about the proper proper jail and he was an absolute asshole he was a night he was a really really unpleasant screw we call them screws because they're always unscrewing the locks and i i heard a story about him actually towards the end of my time i heard a story about him about something he did and and a, a prisoner had had died had killed themselves the prison committed suicide and he'd come into the room and he'd seen them and he'd cut them down and he was giving them mouth to mouth and the and the, the prisoner was clearly dead but he kept giving them mouth to mouth until the medical team arrived which is like 20 minutes half an hour later and he didn't stop he kept trying to save, and he was basically French kissing a lifeless corpse, if you want me to be blunt about it, just in case there was a chance he might survive. Because he wasn't a medical guy, he just knew what his training was. And he kept going where anyone else would have just stopped and, and given up. He kept going to the medical team arrived, and they said, look, I'm really sorry, but he's definitely dead. And he was mm. the most unpleasant screw to deal with, but he, he, and he traumatized himself. He had to take off two weeks for PTSD because of that. So do you know what I mean? It's like things aren't black and white. Everyone is on this spectrum of good and bad. And yeah, that was an important that's, lesson. Um, that's a piece of, of human wisdom we're grateful for. You've been listening to The Last Call with Michael Weiss, me, John Sweeney, our special guest, Chris Atkins. His book, A Bit of a Stretch, highly recommended, is available via uh, online. I'm not going to mention the large river in South America. Take care. Wash your hands. Great. Oh, my God. Oh,